0: Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including but not limited to crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions.
1: You all are sort of geeky index people at CF benchmarks. We are. So can I do one geeky inflation thing? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, do you all know about hedonic regression? Ooh. One of the greatest terms in all of finance. It's a, on a new one on
0: me. new one on me. Well, Matt, I, I, of course, know, but can you explain <laughs> it <again? It's laughs> for, you know, and for the audience, I, I know it very well.
2: You're listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets, the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance, presented by CF Benchmarks. I'm Ken O'Dellige, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst.
0: Hey, Ken, really excited for today's episode. Um, So what do we have in store for the audience today?
2: Yes, indeed. Uh, We have a particularly exciting episode um, in store uh, on this occasion. As our guest, we have... The CIO, Chief Investment Officer of one of our key clients, Bitwise. Now, Bitwise, of course, are one of the seven major investment management firms that have opted to use uh, the CF Benchmarks CME CF Bitcoin Reference Rate New York variant as uh, the benchmark for their Spot Bitcoin applications, obviously for calculating net asset value and benchmarking. So, At this critical juncture, um, we're very, very fortunate to have Matt as our guest. So in this episode, obviously, we're going to take advantage of that. We're going to take the opportunity to talk about um, approval dates, the potential market impact of um, a Spot Bitcoin ETF if it gets approved, the impact on retail, will it be trickle or will it be flood? Um, And from the issuer and advisor perspective, how will a Spot Bitcoin ETF change their ability to provide that access to crypto for their clients? The SEC's recent moves to encourage issuers to move to a cash-create-redeem model in terms of their applications, and we'll round off with potentially looking forward to uh, spot crypto uh, ETFs that may come in in the wake of the Bitcoin um, ETF, if it gets approved. So, Matt, we are really pleased for you to join us, and welcome aboard.
1: Thank you for having me. Honored to be here, and really excited for our conversation.
2: Gabe and I were discussing, before you joined us, the sort of general economic atmosphere in the states, uh, particularly, we are wondering, you know, about that phenomena of although inflation's turning down, the temperatures falling on that, the job market still remains quite strong. A whole bunch of other indicators are, you know, remaining or even becoming even more favourable. The experiential aspect of that is somewhat skewed. People don't necessarily feel better off. You know what I mean?
1: Y'all are sort of geeky index people at CF benchmarks. We are. So can I do one geeky inflation thing? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, do y'all know about hedonic regression? Hedonic regression is, is, uh, an adjustment that they make in official inflation numbers to reflect the fact that goods get better over the time. So like my cell phone gets better each year, right? It gets faster. The camera gets better. The GPS gets better. It gets better. And so in the official inflation statistics, the cost of my cell phone is marked down each year to reflect that the good is improving. But when you go and buy a cell phone, it's still $1,000. That is another example of how these official statistics don't reflect what your actual cost is. Yes, the cell phone is better. Great. But I can't get along with an iPhone 1 right? It just won't function in today's society. I still have to lay out $1,000. And so hedonic regression is is throughout uh, the CPI data, and it it, it applies a negative adjustment of more than a percentage point. And if you compound that over a decade or two decades, which is how long we've been doing this, uh, it really adds up. So it's not just your perception that these official government statistics are wrong. They actually just don't reflect People's reality—they reflect some abstract economic reality, and not how much money is coming out of your wallet, which is surprise, surprise, what people actually care about.
2: Sure, and we, we did have a—we did have an aspect of this that um, kind of brings it, you know, on point, on topic, and you know, we could tap into maybe your experience in this, Matt. How does that experiential aspect play out in terms of decisions by your clients? To invest in whatever, but let's say specifically crypto, I mean the way I actually put it to uh, Gabe too flippantly was um, if you don't feel so great about the medium term outlook, you're not necessarily or well, it's going to have an impact on your decision or you know your views on whether you're going to waste money on buying crypto. How do you see how do you see that um, that factor playing in, into those decisions?
1: Oh, it, interesting point. I actually think it's on the flip side of that. I think there are two reasons that this drives more interest in crypto. One of which is that for some clients, they need find to find ways to take more risk in their portfolio because they need, uh, or at least they want to try to to achieve greater gains to to save for a particular goal because it's always receding out of reach. But the bigger one is, I think people are looking at the macro and geopolitical and U.S. political system. And they're just sensing risk. It may be hard for them to pinpoint the precise risk. Maybe it's the ever-accumulating debt. Maybe it's inflation statistics that don't seem to add up. Maybe it's the wild insanity of the U.S. political system. Maybe it's Congress threatening to shut down all the time. Maybe it's what's going on in in the Middle East and, and with shipping through the straits. But they sense risk. And so they want a hedge, a release that's not tethered to that traditional system that they see In sort of an unstable equilibrium and why not add just one or two percent crypto to give yourself that release valve, that alternative play that's not correlated to all the craziness going on here it's certainly the case that crypto can be a risk asset so at difficult economic times particularly in crises you can see short-term pullbacks but i think mostly people think of it as a hedge against the uneasiness that they see and feel in the system and so you know, we, we, we've had a good year. I think that will continue. Uh, and I think that's the way a lot of people think of it.
2: Brilliant, brilliant. Um, clearly, there's hardly anyone around, I believe, whether we, we want to talk about crypto or institutional crypto or just institutional investment management, period, who does not know that um, something's going on with the SEC and crypto and these major investment management firms, including yourselves, and we're coming up to potentially a key date in that progression towards this uh, sort of like watershed moment. That key date, of course, is the 10th of January. And it's become quite an iconic date in people's minds or observers' minds for the same reason. Basically, people seem to view it as a date that, you know, essentially is a pivotal, pivotal date for the whole piece. Um, do you agree with that?
1: I think it's a pivotal date. I think there's some nuance that the public should understand around that date, which I'm happy to get into. But absolutely, you know, the the first spot Bitcoin ETF application was filed in 2013, so we've been waiting a long time for this. But if you look at what's in the record recently, whether it's the Grayscale lawsuit uh, that pushed the SEC forward on this, or the fact that issuers are updating their S1s and S3s and 19b-4 applications. Those are all indicia of a movement towards a potential approval. Of course, we don't know if it will be approved, but January 10th is uh, an important date in the sand. And of course I can't talk about our specific application, but I come from an ETF background, so I can describe where we're at in the process. The important thing for people to understand on these uh, 1930 Act, uh, 33 Act ETFs is they need two things to launch. You can think of it like the old like nuclear launch keys thing where you need to turn two keys in order to have a launch. Uh, those keys have technical terms in SEC land. One is called a 19B4, which is the approval to list an ETF on a particular exchange like the New York Stock Exchange. And one is called the S1 or S3, which is like the prospectus stock. These 19B4s run on a calendar basis once they're filed, the SEC has up to 240 days to say yes or no. And they're held to that standard. And that 240th day for the ARC application ends up on January 10th. That's why that's that bright light in the sand. Now, many think the SEC is likely to line up multiple issuers and decide yes or no at the same time. They don't want to be seen as sort of crowning one issuer with first mover advantage. Um, so there's an expectation we may see a decision. The reason there's some vagueness around it is because there's that second key, which is the S1 or the S3. And that doesn't run on a calendar system. It runs on sort of an iterative process with the SEC. And you can see issuers filing one, two, you know, amendments to their S1s as they continue those conversations. So it's likely that we'll hear something around 19 b 4s on or before January 10th. Could be a few days earlier, could be on that date, but then the question is, will those S ones already be effective, or will they need more time to be effective? Um, and that's that's sort of the nuance. But there, you know, January is going to be, at least most people believe, a, a big month for this. We're going to learn a lot
0: in the first handful of weeks of January. Can we can we get back onto that those S ones? This is something that's been in the news quite a bit recently. We've seen a few of these ETF filers, including Bitwise, update their S ones with regards to the redemption process. I, I believe we've we've come kind of like from an in, in process uh, a redemption process from in kind redemptions to cash redemptions. How has this revision process been for you all, uh, or what are some considerations for Bitwise as you shifted from execution in kind to cash create redeem? Yeah. The most important
1: uh, sort of uh, a factor for people to keep in mind is that the big question is, do we have a spot ETF or do we not have a spot ETF? When we get to the point of in-kind versus cash creations, you're talking about like the 99th yard line of efficiency versus the hundredth yard line of efficiency. It's absolutely the case that in-kind creations and redemptions are the most elegant method for funds to move into any fund structure that's ever been created Right? That's, that's part of the beauty of ETFs. It lowers trading friction. Uh, it has other, other advantages, but a cash creation process also works. Right, Initially, most bond ETFs were cash creations. People have been doing cash creations in ETFs for a long time, and there are major disadvantages to a cash create. So I think what you're seeing uh, in, in, in the record and you're seeing in the meetings Uh, the different issuers are having with the SEC and BlackRock put up a whole diagram on in-kind versus cash creation is that the system is defaulting to the simplest method. So cash is the simplest method. And even if in-kind would be like incrementally more efficient and elegant in a theoretical sense, you know, that there appears to be sort of a, a collective wisdom coalescing around the idea of let's get cash creates over the line. It'll be in my view, if we get it launched, uh, the, 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 the safest, arguably the safest and arguably the cheapest way investors have ever had to gain exposure to Bitcoin. So that is a massive win. And there's the, the downsides are really minimal. So it's funny to me as an ETF person that the whole world is talking about 19B4s and cash versus in-kind creations and grant or trust taxation issues. Uh, it's incredible, the detail. The big picture story is, can we get to spot ETF or not? If we can, it will be a huge win for investors. And I'm optimistic that it'll happen.
0: Those are great points. And yeah, you're right. We are certainly going into the nitty gritty. And you know, for us index nerds, like you, you mentioned earlier, we, we appreciate people being so interested in, in, in some, some of these areas where, quite frankly, people probably never even paid attention to before. But it just goes you, to show you the amount of interest that's behind, you know, uh, such a novel product for for U.S. clients, right? So the first ever spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, but you mentioned that there was the uh, redemption process from in-kind would be, you know, a marginally more inf- efficient for our audience. Does that have to do with just because of the additional transactions that you would incur switching back into cash from Bitcoin? Yeah, that that that's exactly right. I mean, so so to, to abstract it back.
1: If we think about like an equity ETF, like an S&P 500 ETF, the way in-kind redemptions work is that the ETF would hold all the 500 stocks in the S&P. And when someone redeemed, they would just give them those stocks and it would be on that authorized participant or institutional trader to sell those stocks, uh, in the open market. The way a cash process would work is that the trust itself would sell those stocks in this, in this stock based example and then distribute cash, right? And so the same thing is true in Bitcoin. Are you taking Bitcoin and giving it to the authorized participant that's redeeming the shares or are you selling the Bitcoin and sending them cash? Now, obviously, uh, two steps are more than one, right? Give the Bitcoin or sell the Bitcoin and give them cash. And there may be transaction costs that could be passed along in marginally larger spreads or other issues like that. Uh, but it is, it is. Uh, uh, it's fiddling sort of uh, with, with precision on the edges, uh, but that's the difference. Like you can think of it as you have to do two things or you have to do one thing. Two things is more than one. Therefore it's less efficient and they're, they're slightly higher cost. but it's all in my view, uh, relatively marginal compared to the, the gains that you get.
0: Well, certainly like in the example you gave with the S and P 500, it's, you either do it in kind, giving the 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 person or the institutional trader all those companies, right? In this kind of a prorated fashion. And I can imagine, you know, that that would be uh, you know, quite a lot of trades just trying to get that into cash if that was the end goal. So in some ways it it, it is truly marginal, right? Like how you're saying. And since it appears to be kind of heading in this cash create redeem. I would imagine that a lot of these asset managers are considering, you know, what are some of the most largest pools of liquidity for institutions and going along in the wake of this rise in institutional interest uh, on the in the wake of these spot Bitcoin ETF filings, we've seen how open interest on uh, the CME Bitcoin futures market has just kind of steadily been climbing and has, has actually rose quite a bit. So you've seen in- increased interest at the institutional level, you've seen increased liquidity, therefore, and a firm such as yourself, Bitwise, who's uh, chosen to uh, strike their navs using the reference rate, the BRR uh, reference rate, that's also tied to the CME uh, futures contracts. It is kind of creating this kind of one uh, harmonious price, you know, between this pool of liquidity and this pool of liquidity, um, which should mitigate any sort of slippage or additional costs if you were using a different you know, reference rate for your uh, Bitcoin ETF. A lot of folks probably don't know these kind of details because when you think about a spot Bitcoin ETF, they probably think it's, you know, just like a commodity. Every, every spot Bitcoin ETF is created equal. Um, you know, it's a passive investment instrument. And so when you take a, a, a more nuanced view and you dive a little bit deeper, you start to realize that, you know, there, the, the, the prices that you kind of use to access your liquidity to uh, the prices that you're using to settle uh, you know, the NAV and the cash-free redeems can be kind of important. So it is gonna be interesting to see how this kind of plays out assuming that we do get there. But you know, there's certainly a case to be made to um, use a reference rate that's tapping into a larger institutional interest pool uh, on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It, it's really important. Uh,
1: I love that you bring it up. It's all about this sort of circle of liquidity that's self-reinforcing. And the thing that people maybe don't understand, you know, the the, the key participants in this space, the uh, authorized participants and market makers who are making market in this space, um, the joke about them is is they'll sell their soul for half a penny. These are people that are you know making money on minute arbitrage. So it may sound unimportant how you're deriving your pricing and whether it's different than how the futures derives your pricing. But if your sort of margin of profit is based on this tiny little sliver, having them all aligned removes those risks. And that's where you get this circle of liquidity. That's really important and builds over time and creates a much better ecosystem. You don't want to introduce like, uh, unexpected risk; They don't need it. Why would they choose it? They'll choose the more efficient method. And so, yeah, we at Bitwise think a lot about this virtuous cycle of liquidity. Uh, that we think will develop in in well-structured ETFs, uh, you know, if and when they launch.
2: Um, I want to zoom back out, number one, and also maybe rewind a little bit to earlier, part of the earlier discussion. We did touch on this. It is this dichotomy in expectations between approval of one or maybe a few ETF applications on, you know... On a specific date or around the specific date or the other model, which is, you know, the alternative uh, uh, sort of scenario that people envisage approval of everything. Do, do, do you sort of um do you sort of land on one particular side? And if so, if so, which, why? why?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think they should only ever approve the Bitwise product. So that <laughs> Clearly, would be yeah. <laughs> for the world. No, look, I, I, I've, I've done a study of this. I looked at all of the instances of single commodity ETFs that exist in the market, whether that's gold, silver, platinum, palladium, oil, natural gas, et cetera. And if you look at those, you'll see two things are true. The first mover, the first ETF to launch has the vast majority of the assets, or at least a majority of the assets. And it also has a significantly higher price than the second mover in the space. You sort of get a liquidity head start by being first. And as a result, you can extract higher rents from investors in the form of a higher expense ratio. That's why GLD, the 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 spider gold ETF, is much bigger than IAU, the BlackRock gold ETF, even though GLD charges 40 basis points and IAU charges 25 because it's the most liquid, most established, has the options chain. So as I look at it from like an investor perspective. Uh, what do they want? They want the most choice. They want an even playing field and they want people competing with the best available products. So I think that would be the best thing for investors. And you know when they when the the most recent crypto ETF launch was the Ethereum Futures ETF, they lined up three providers. We all launched in the market. It is very competitive. So uh, that's my that's my hope for investors of what we see as opposed to determining who, um, who gets to go first based on when they decided randomly to file? All of us in the space, you know, we've been working on this for five years. This is our third application at Bitwise. You know, we think the fairest thing for investors and the best thing for the market is just to let multiple uh, come to market for at the same
2: time. Yeah, I mean, we, we could um, uh, have a supplementary one there because you know there is a sort of um, there's a sort of slightly uh, you know outlier um, aspect to this and um, I should say application. What happens with the grayscale Bitcoin trust application, or its bid in general? If you want to look at several years of trying to get this listed, I I don't know how to frame it in my mind to to kind of get them in the same cohort of approved applications as you know the the ones that we know that sort of were all launched last year. How does that work from your point of view?
1: Yeah, I mean you know grayscale is a great firm and uh, and I have nothing but respect for them and they did an amazing job. Uh, sort of investigating this question of, can the SEC allow futures-based ETFs but not spot ETFs? So they deserve a huge amount of credit. Their process is different, right? Their up, listing is the word they use from the OTCQX market to to the, uh, I think they're on the NYSEARCA market. And that's a different process, different filing system. I honestly don't know how that lines up or how it will line up, but I would be comfortable with them coming to market at the same time too. Again, Crypto is this funny little world. We are harsh competitors with grayscale, right? We try to win against them, and yet uh, I also want them to do well, right? And 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 that's that's the unique thing about crypto. All of us are in here thinking that the pie will be much bigger, and uh, there's room for multiple people. So I don't know how that process will work. They are the wild card because it's just a different filing, a different system than everyone else is on. I don't know how to handicap it. Um, but we'll see. We'll see in the market.
2: Um, so this uh, again goes back to the minutiae of the application process, specifically the structures that uh, issuers um, have been encouraged to set up in advance of potential approval of uh, these spot uh, Bitcoin ETFs. Let's talk about uh, surveillance sharing agreements. Uh, and surveillance sharing agreements, obviously, for you know just a thumbnail sketch, is um, it's an agreement by all participants in the ETF uh, provision process to essentially have oversight of all the incoming data that they can all see and to share it amongst themselves. And I think the implication is obviously that um, should the regulator, in this case, the SEC, decide at some point that it wants to see a specific set of trades over a specific time period, it can then dip into that data and um, have access to it as well. Now, I, I, the, the point, the reason why I raised it, of course, is that it's been billed, kind of implicitly as a kind of silver bullet uh, for, you know, the last bastion of SEC resistance uh, to seeing a spot Bitcoin ETF um, come into existence. Um, but uh, do you agree with that, essentially?
1: Yeah, uh, I think surveillance agreements are nice. Uh, I think it's part of the maturation of the crypto market, which is good for investors. But I think if you look at the actual filings, they are SSAs in some of the filings and they are not SSAs in other parts of the filings. If you know sort of the, the detailed legal requirements that the SEC has spelled out in prior 19b4 uh, disapprovals, um, a surveillance sharing agreement with the spot exchange doesn't technically satisfy the core of that requirement. What it does is it improves the holistic picture. So I think of them as more a a nice to have than, a, uh, than the silver bullet. But I do think it's a sign of how, uh, you know, the entry of, a potential entry of Bitcoin ETFs into the market is just improving this marketplace and introducing more trust and introducing better systems and uh, is good for Bitcoin and is good for investors. And this is just one more piece of how that's true.
2: Yeah, and I've, I've heard a few answers to that question, you know, in various forms. And I think that's the most nuanced and probably the, it just feels the most apt from you, uh, Matt. So, uh, you know, we, we appreciate that. And uh, let's think about, uh, gents, um, what our world, you know, our sphere will look like um, when or if this spot Bitcoin ETF um, is now in existence.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're at the point where we've just been longing for this type of product for quite some time. And so it's, Um, you know fingers crossed that we we get it across the finish line here you know post early January Um, but you know Matt you've been in this ETF world for quite some time you've got a lot of experience here Um, you've seen a lot of launches over your career Uh, and we've we've all seen how important and popular the ETF wrapper has become for the industry uh, understandably so and also for end clients because it's uh, for its efficiencies, it's low cost, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I would really like to get your take. Um, and I'm sure the listeners would love this too, uh, on the rollout of the spot Bitcoin product, how, how it's going to look, uh, can you take us through the stakeholder chain, um, from traditional financial institutions to independent registered advisors, all the way to any clients and what you kind of see happening, uh, next year. Yeah. I think it's going
1: to be transformative for this space. I really think there is a before ETF and after ETF uh, Bitcoin. I think it's that important. And I think the, the other thing I would add is I think it's closer to the beginning of Bitcoin's journey than it is to the end. We've been leading up to this, but that doesn't mean like we're entering the ninth inning. I think maybe we're entering the second inning with the approval of an ETF and there's a long run afterwards. We can talk about in in, in a bit maybe... Um, how the gold ETF did this for gold and what that, how that transformed that market. But you're absolutely right to raise the kind of investors you do. You know, I, I think there are a lot of people out there who say, why do we need a Bitcoin ETF? I can buy it through an app. Uh, I can buy it on my ledger. And that's absolutely true. But for most of the wealth in America, that's definitely not true. A financial advisor who financial advisors control about 40% of the wealth in America, can't invest for their clients through an app. It's really hard for them today to gain exposure to Bitcoin um, uh, in any format. They can do it, but there are multiple hoops they have to jump through and it's very risky and and, and difficult. Uh, This will open that up. If you look at uh, institutions, yes, they can have direct custodial accounts but then they have to underwrite the custodian and monitor that. And then they have to worry about audit and they have to worry about administration and how are they trading and who are their counterparties. And an ETF just solves that. You have an institutional manager with a qualified custodian that they monitor, that they have audited by a you know a big four firm, that they have an administrator like Bank of New York. It's an incredible chain of protections for them. Um, the, the thing I like to point out to people is crypto has been built to this point, you know, zero to almost two trillion dollars, primarily on the back of self-directed retail investors. Yes, there's some institutions in the space. Yes, there's some early movers, but it's really retail self-directed investors, and they make a lot of noise. But they only control about 20% of the wealth in America. So four fifths of the wealth has been largely excluded from the market. And if we get an ETF, that will that will dramatically change. Now it won't all change overnight. Right. If you look at the advisor space, who will be able to buy on day one? It'll be registered investment advisors and independents, and then you'll need to see the ETF approved on national platforms like, like Morgan and Merrill and Wells and stuff. And that will take you know days, weeks, months, quarters. Who knows? Um, so it will be um, it will be more of a like a, a rollout than it will uh, just a day one overnight change. Uh, but I think it'll be transformative uh, for years. That's certainly what we saw in the gold market where uh, I think it had eight straight years of net inflows or something uh, completely transformed the gold the gold asset class. And I think we'll see that here in Bitcoin and maybe, maybe at an even faster clip because there's so much pent-up demand.
0: I, I think that's super important to kind of keep that perspective on expectations. Like you're saying, it, it is going to likely be a rollout. It, it should likely be a rollout. I think you know for anyone who thinks that this is just gonna you know come to market and then boom it just allocated across all these different institutions and their models you know it's not going to work quite that way you know these independent uh advisors or who are more nimble are likely to you know consider uh onboarding or having existing clients that are interested in it and allocating it uh to it um those would likely come first also, it may depend on demographics and regions. You know, if you are if you are an independent advisor on the West Coast with a younger demographic client book, you know, you're probably more likely to see a lot more interest than if you were located somewhere else with a different uh, age demographic. So all these things are going to kind of feed on to this rollout. And uh, what I've kind of said is to kind of keep my expectations kind of more tempered and just watch this kind of play out because, you know, I would say... The ETF is is a game changer for all the reasons that you've you've listed. And if there ever was a shot to get, you know, a Bitcoin product on a big institution's platform, it's gonna have to be a spot ETF. You know, the, the futures, the other things, um, just we're never really gonna get there. So this is kind of the unlock, the way I see it, for the Bitcoin uh, market. And yeah, I would agree with you. It's it's like we're in the second inning still. We've got the having next year. Um, we would love to kind of d- jump into some of the outlook stuff next. So, Ken, do you have any uh, follow-up questions regarding this? Or I see Matt, no, you...
2: no. I was I was gonna. Um, I was looking forward to hearing uh, the outlook uh, stuff. Um, whether the outlook Matt, for the business of um, you know offering access to uh, Bitcoin through an institutional uh, investment products, and additionally, of course, the potential impact on the market. Um, if any from uh, the advent of uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs uh, listed on you know major exchanges, well, what, what's your view in general?
1: Yeah, um, and and then I have one more advisor story that I'd love to tell sure, you. Please. But yeah. uh, <laughs> To answer that specific question, yeah, the impact is really significant, right? I mean, you know, Bitwise has built its business around serving financial advisors, and there are many people who we just can't do business with because their platform won't let them. Or because they only use ETFs, uh, we now have a suite of crypto ETFs, including futures ETFs and equity ETFs. Um, but some people just want spot, and so this will be transformative for our business in terms of the conversations we can have and the actionability of those conversations. You know, we've spent uh, seven years in this market doing education in the market, and that's great. And you know, we have we have uh, significant assets and significant clients. But this is just going to open the aperture, um, massively. Uh, I, I do think it will impact price before that. I'm going to tell my advisor story, Please. uh, because it raised such a great point, uh, that speaks to this rollout narrative. You know, Bitwise serves a couple thousand, uh, financial advisors. So we've seen how they adopt crypto. And it's not importantly that day one, they allocate 5% across all their clients. That's just not how it works. Day one, they buy it in their personal account. And then they watch it for a couple months to see what it's like. And then they have a few clients who have asked about crypto and really eager. And they allocate for them at a small percentage. And then maybe they do an educational session where Bitwise comes in and talks about crypto. And their clients can hear about this from an institutional perspective. And then they have further conversations at their next quarterly meeting with those clients. And then maybe they put it in a portfolio model at a one percent allocation, and then maybe they up that to two and a half percent. But that is a journey that takes you know a year, and it it, it builds over time. But it's absolutely not the case uh, that you know that this ETF will launch and the next day you'll see this at a five percent allocation in million American portfolios. I think it will get there, but it it will take each step in that journey. So I, I think that's. I think that's really important in terms of its, its impact in the market. Investing can be complex or investing can be simple. One way to think about Bitcoin next year is that it's a asset whose price is set by supply and demand, and we know that the net new supply is going to fall in half because of the halving in April. And I would argue that the net new demand is going to increase significantly. Because it's going to open the if we get an ETF, it will open up Bitcoin to a wide variety of investors. There are a million complicating factors. There's interest rates. There's geopolitical concerns. There's what's going on with the sort of liquidation of bankruptcy estates from the 2022 uh, terrible things. Uh, you know, there's there's the rise of ordinals and the cost of transit. There's a million things. But sometimes you can step back and abstract and think potentially more demand, certainly new supply. That's a pretty good setup. That doesn't guarantee it goes straight up, but it's a pretty good setup, and uh, and we're really optimistic about where Bitcoin is is heading in the next couple of years.
0: Well, that that's really well said and super helpful. I think for listeners, and it's always great to kind of distill things down and kind of keep things simple. So, I uh, really appreciate that take. That was that was really great. But speaking of next year, you know. What's the uh, bitwise house view? We've got the CIO um, on our plot today. so we're very privileged. Um, what's kind of the 10,000 view- foot view? Um, what are some trends that you're seeing in crypto? We've been very kind of Bitcoin centric this episode given the timing of when we're recording. But I think you know it would be great to kind of get your take on all this. Yeah. Uh, w- look, we think we're in a multi-year bull market in crypto. Uh,
1: We think that started in 2023 and will continue and accelerate in 2024. We recently put out our predictions for 2024, and we are predicting a a new all-time high for Bitcoin as these trends we've developed uh, happen in the market. But I think there is more to that mainstream story uh, than, than just Bitcoin and the Bitcoin ETF, if it happens. That's a big deal. But if we were to look, say, in the Ethereum ecosystem, You have EIP 4844, which is scheduled for Q1, which in my view should drop the cost of transactioning on layer twos 90% to the sub penny level. And I think once we get reliable transactions on a broadly distributed programmable blockchain that are sub penny, all of a sudden, all the use cases we've talked about for years, gaming, social media, micropayments, remittances, big brands coming into the space, all of a sudden, all those are possible. And I think uh, people have sort of discounted this narrative of crypto finding, you know, large scale mainstream uses because people have been talking about it for years. But if you went back to the last bull market, you know, the cost of transactions on Ethereum spiked to $200, filled me a mainstream application where the price might be a dollar one day and $200 the next day. It's just simply impossible. The technology was not ready. It was like launching a streaming video service on the internet in 1998, right? It's not going to happen. But now we have broadband crypto or we're very close to broadband crypto, uh, maybe on Solana uh, today, uh, maybe on on Ethereum post uh, 4844, which, which could be Q1. And so I think we're gonna see a blossoming of mainstream uses beyond just Bitcoin as a digital store of value. Again, I think we'll step back in a few years and look at 2023, 2024, 2025 as the period where crypto went from sort of obscure niche to fully mainstream, fully embraced, and certain it will be here. You see indi- indications of that, BlackRock moving into the space, Investor moving into the space, potential Bitcoin ETF, Nike doing major volume, UBS tokenizing assets on chain. But I think uh, that's just a hint of what's going to come. I think it's going to be a really exciting... Uh, 2024 and, 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 the, and maybe even more exciting 2025.
2: Um, clearly, we're still
1: talking about this
2: um, post-Spot Bitcoin ETF world. With that happening, of course, with the advent of that first Spot crypto ETF, people will, of course, begin to start thinking of what they are thinking about it already, but we'll start speaking about it more seriously. And with the view to the nearer term about potential further crypto assets in the ETF wrapper form. Is this something that uh, Bitwise is looking at? I mean, I know that it is something that you're looking at, but in terms of the time scale and, um, you know, how urgently this is uh, something on your horizon, uh, can you give us any color on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the nat- next natural space to look, not surprisingly, is at Ethereum. Like, like Bitcoin, uh, there are regulated futures on Ethereum that trade on the CME, that's a big, piece of what's allowing us to potentially move forward on a spot Bitcoin ETF. So we're we're certainly considering whether it's appropriate to file for a spot Ethereum ETF. Uh, There is a a step function from that until you get to other assets, because of course, there aren't regulated futures on Solana and there aren't regulated futures on other assets in the US. I think eventually we'll get there, but that that is more of a distant idea. But I do think the world will at least be contemplating an Ethereum spot ETF. there are more complications. It's a more complicated asset. Its regulatory status is less clear. Um, but, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. I think there is a pathway for it in the future, at least I hope so. So Bitwise is actively thinking about that. We want to be, you know, the crypto ETF leader. We think uh, crypto needs an ETF uh, provider that's a specialist in this space that really cares about crypto. That thinks it has an important point. That's paying attention to it in bull markets and bear markets, and so that means you know we have to provide the products people want. I think people want a spot ETH ETF. So if if we think that's possible, then you'll you'll see a filing for us. Uh, we're we're definitely looking at it.
2: Sure, sure. So um, w- where you've placed where you characterize Bitwise is um, you characterize them eloquently as a specialist, which is you know I don't think anyone could disagree, but. There is another aspect of this, but the experiential aspect of the issuer and, of course, the um, client um, in this um, in this uh, sort of like uh, potential world, which is could be just a matter of a few weeks away um, if if everything goes to plan. And I'm only raising this because you said that you're comfortable to actually address this actually, Matt. Um, yeah. The the aspect of we all know which the way things go in the conventional investment management world. Speaking specifically about ETFs, maybe focusing on, uh, you know, passive invest, the passive side. Generally, to for you to remain that issuer of choice for a lot of clients, how do you propose to do that in this world that is going to get really crowded really quick with all these big beasts as well? Um, obviously, it sort of brings in the aspect potentially, potentially of tweaking that NER or thinking about the NER and on a competitive basis. Is this something that um, clearly is a strategic consideration for you guys in the near to medium term?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Bitwise is committed to being a winner in this space, and that means multiple things. Uh, It means uh, uh, being very competitive from a price perspective. It means using best-in-class service providers. Um, There is a perception, I think, in the industry that the sort of big firms coming into crypto have a built-in advantage, the BlackRocks, et cetera. And those are amazing firms. But if you look at the history of ETFs in specialist areas of the market, it's actually often specialist providers that win the bulk of the assets. If you look at MLPs, uh, it was a If you look at commodities, U.S. commodity funds, which was like eight guys in Oakland, out-competed Deutsche Bank to win that market. And the reason for that is that uh, financial advisors need to or, or often want someone who's thinking about this 24, seven, 365. uh, we're certainly smaller than some of those providers, but we have 63 people that wake up every day, including on Sunday, thinking about crypto. And, um, you know, we have a, a full distribution team in the, in the space that's meeting with advisors, you know, every day of the week. And I, I think we, we can compete in that area. Uh, as long as we're competitive on price and competitive on structure, and we feel very confident that we will be.
2: Wonderful. Uh, It's it's a 24-7
0: market, right? And, you know, you all have, I'm sure in that 63-person cohort, have various experiences, and your background's obviously pretty good in this this traditional finance world. It's just that you guys have been in the space kind of earlier. You guys were, you know, one of the original asset managers, I believe Bitwise uh, was the first one to do an index fund, right, on crypto. So, right. um, like you said, it's that specialist type approach, which, you know, tip of the cap for Bitwise, but um, it's gonna be exciting to see. And I, I think, you know, the specialist in crypto, isn't that something that's been a mantra yeah. of late and <laughs> some sort of a PR plush? Or well, I think I've seen you, you know, on, on the screens here you know what's interesting these days bitcoin cut uh how was the uh, how was the commercial recording with the most interesting man in the world but now also on crypto <laughs> that's right uh i'm i'm I, I think i now get to claim maybe that i'm the
1: second most interesting man in the world since i was i was in that. yeah uh yeah, that was that was, that was a fun a fun ad. You know, we we want to get um, Bitwise's brand as a as a crypto specialist um, more broadly known and more broadly recognized. And we had this uh, creative idea of, uh, of of connecting with the the most interesting man in the world. And uh, I think the team did an exceptional job. It was amazing to see that uh, go viral on social media, um, spawn its own uh, memes, And we were excited to roll that out and, and are rolling out as a, a national advertising campaign. It was very intimidating is the answer to be on set, uh, with the most, uh, most interesting man in the world, but he's, he's a, he's a very nice guy and I had a lot of fun doing it. And, um, yeah, I never thought I would be able to say I've been in an ad with him and now
0: I can, now I have a fun fact to share at parties. So it's good. Yeah. I think we just got our episode title. We can put uh, Matt Hogan, the second most interesting. <laughs> so, um, that, thank you for that. that no, it's uh, really interesting to see. So,
2: yeah, yeah. So, I just wanted to. I mean, you've given us uh, the, you know, your outlook for you know, the year ahead, maybe a little bit longer, in terms of the market, in terms of the issuing environment, in terms of you know, the performance environment for these um, for these products that are coming on stream, hopefully. But let's, if you don't mind, um, you know, can you give me some top-level view of the plans that you've got for Bitwise in the um, sort of medium term, maybe for the year ahead as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We want to continue being the crypto specialist in the space. So, you know, hopefully we'll be able to launch this spot Bitcoin ETF and have a million conversations with clients. Uh, Hopefully we, you know, We'll figure out a way to think about a spot Ethereum ETFs, but our role in this space is to, you know, open up and help explain crypto to traditional financial clientele who don't have a good way of accessing information about it and don't have a good way of accessing it from a product perspective. So we've been fortunate to do it for, you know, seven years now. We're pretty proud of our track record. We've been running, you know, the, the Bitwise 10 crypto index fund. We've, we've avoided most of the major uh, blowups in the space, whether that's FTX or or, or Binance or Luna. Um, And uh, and we have a great track record with clients of doing that. So, you know, more of the same, uh, just hopefully with a wider aperture to have conversations uh, because we will have these new products in our arsenal. And we're really excited. The whole team is uh, incredibly fired up about
2: it. And in terms of, I mean, finding out more information uh, for potential clients or just the general interested parties. Clearly, you know, we're we're in the digital space. People know how to find your website, but is there anywhere specific that you might want to point people uh, in terms of people who may be interested in uh, investing or finding out more information?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The website, bitwiseinvestments.com. You can also sign up for uh, our research. I put out a weekly CIO memo, my thoughts on the market, um, or of course you can find me over on X, uh, what we used to call Twitter, uh, Matt underscore Hogan, H O U G A N. So that's a, that's a fun pace to follow my, my day-to-day thoughts as well, but we'd love to talk to you and, uh, love to set up a meeting to, to chat.
2: Brilliant. Brilliant. Is there anything else that, um, you wanted to spotlight, um, uh, now that I, myself or Gabe haven't asked you hitherto?
1: No, I think you've done a really a really great job. You know, of course, we don't know if a spot Bitcoin ETF will launch. We don't know if there will be a spot Ethereum ETF. But now is a great time to be educating yourself about the market because I think 2024 could be very interesting. And uh, I commend you guys for for running such a great podcast to help provide high quality information to people in the space. It's it's still. Are defined this is definitely an example of it so thanks for having me on
2: yeah we appreciate that you can come again uh, you, with flattery like that <laughs> <the interest. laughs> we definitely want you, yep. to, you know, probably, in all seriousness yes. yeah
0: yeah
1: to
2: come back um so yeah that is um matt hogan the chief investment officer of bitwise and uh we really appreciate uh you coming aboard matt so guys if you enjoyed that you can find all the other episodes in the back catalog of cfb talks digital assets on all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, and others. And uh, while you're there, we'd love for you to subscribe or like, particularly if you're on uh, Vimeo or watching us on YouTube, please like and subscribe to our content there too. For further content, cfbenchmarks.com is where you need to go to read the quarterly attribution reports, the market monthlies, and of course the weekly newsletters as well. And after all that, we'll see you again for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. Thanks for joining us.